Hello there! This show contains material which a truly free society would neither fear nor suppress. The language and concepts contained herein will not cause eternal torment in the place where the guy with the horns and pointed stick conducts his business. Hello all. Hola, que tal? <laughs> Brilliant! Brilliant! So what's going on? Anything exciting going on on this episode number 893 of Bloodthirsty Vegetarians? We're approaching 100, actually. And technically, this is episode number 52, right? This will be number 0050, right? Yes, I think so. Yeah, and what that means is that... We add the two on, which are out of order, and this is another anniversary. Here it is. Woo! Woo! Every every show is an anniversary of the previous show. Yes, yes, and every paycheck's a fortune, and every <laughs> uh, every walk to work is a parade. Every picture tells a story. And, um, uh, God, I love the core. <laughs> Ooh-ah! <laughs> you remember that from Aliens? <laughs> Apone was saying, God, I love the core. Every paycheck's a fortune, every formation a parade, every meal a banquet. Anyway, he had, he had a little stub of a cigar. He always yeah. had the stub of the cigar in his mouth. Yeah. yeah, I was kind of bummed when he died. He was uh, he was one of my favorites. That might be like one of the only movies that was better than the original. It, they're different though. The second one's more of an excitement kind of action thing. The yeah. first one's more of a horror thriller kind of thing. They're, but they're both really good. Number three and number four, throw them away. Yeah, number two is good. <laughs> Bet you never hear that before. Number two is really good. Sometimes you do. Yeah, so this is Bloodthirsty Vegetarians. I'm John Tallarico. And this is Rich Wilgus, and uh, we are here at the Fairfield Glassworks and Tape Dispensary. This is Studio B, B2. That's right, here in Rockefeller Center. And uh, we have, um, what's his name, conducting the uh, the NBC Philharmonic. Jeez, I can't remember his name. Paul Schaefer. <laughs> That's him. <laughs> so, you know... Not that I want to talk about sports, but I must say I, I'm not disappointed that the U.S. didn't uh, go into the round of 16 in the World Cup. We played terribly. We didn't deserve it. If by some chance we did happen to beat Ghana in that last game, because Italy did us a favor and beat Shaq. Italy did us a favor and beat themselves. Yeah. Well, and they played well against the Italians. I'll give them that, even though it was an own goal. But I don't know. You know, they just didn't deserve it. So to hell with them. <laughs> <laughs> Screw them. Maybe we'll play a little better next year and actually deserve to get into the round of 16. Yeah, I was, um, this past week, I was hosting some uh, business partners from Japan, and, and they were talking about the World Cup as well, just briefly. Um, and they pretty much had the same kind of experience as the U.S., the Japanese team did. Yeah, I, I think they want, they they lost a game, then tied a game, and then I don't know what happened in their third game. I think Australia beat them. Yeah. That was like a big win, supposedly, for the Aussies. Not that I want to talk about the World Cup. No. <laughs> what else? What else did you learn from our our friends from the East? Well, there were three people visiting. Um, two of them did not speak English more than you know the typical hello goodbye kind of thing. Um, so I was talking through an interpreter the entire time, which is an interesting process in and of itself. Um, you have plenty of time to form your thoughts uh, between conversation because you 
you say what you're going to say to the the interpreter and you have to be very careful how you say it and then the interpreter while he's speaking to the other uh Japanese speaking people in J- Japanese you have plenty of time to think of your next statement <laughs> and then you come back it's very disjointed conversation well so. it's kind of like a chess game cuz you get to think while your opponent's clock is running <laughs> and he's thinking too well i wasn't thinking of them as opponents but i guess well maybe we should have a clock though you have to speak in so much or the flag falls and you lose <laughs> right yeah it would definitely be more efficient put them under pressure exactly uh, no <laughs> the other thing i did learn is that that the American culture, and, and this is something that I knew intuitively, but the American culture is is way more relaxed than other cultures. Um, formality sort of has been thrown out the window in most cases. And, it's funny because I wouldn't use the word relaxed to describe American culture at all, but with respect to formalities, that's yeah, probably true. Yeah. And we're probably going to address that a little bit in our next segment. Yes, we are. This is all about multiculturalism and the conflict of cultures. And so one thing that I thought it was great, though, is um, when I first met these people— The sushi? No, not the sushi. When I first met these people, the way that they handed me their business card was just very impressive. They took their business card out as it as if it were a thing of, of value, not like the American people where they just toss their business cards around. They throw them. Yeah, or stick them in walls. They took it out as a, a thing of value, held it in both hands, you know, with, with uh, one end of the, the card held with both thumbs, and they handed it to me very carefully and then bowed as they did that. Mm. And and it was almost as if they were saying, here, here is me. I'm giving you a piece of me. Take this, you know, with, with the respect. The body of Christ. No, 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 not that. <laughs> Take this with respect, you know, and, and it was very impressive. And I, I thought, you know what? I'm going to start handing my business cards out like that and see what kind of reaction I get. I don't know if it'll play. <laughs> it won't play in the U.S. Well, you know, it's funny because I've had an experience, a couple experiences meeting some of our big Japanese accounts, too, at trade shows. And uh, my experiences were not unlike that. And uh, one, <laughs> actually, I had no, in, uh, no intention of even talking about this, but what you said just made me think about this. One of our sales girls, Danielle went uh, to a show and she has a really big Japanese account and they spent a lot of money with us and um, she went up to the guy I think his name is Yoshi and she hugged him oh bad (laughs) move (laughs) he was mortified he was sweating at just how over the line that kind of was in in, in the context of a business relationship you know but I have tons of people that I know through work where I've never met them I've only spoke to them on the phone I would give them a hug or they would hug me immediately again of being a little bit more relaxed. Well, I mean, anybody who watches Iron Chef knows that there's certainly a lot more um, structure within Japanese uh, yes, society. Yeah. yeah. And and it was great because they also brought gifts, something that I wasn't expecting. Sushi? Know. No, they gave me a, a box set of pretty nice uh, chopsticks, a, a set of two sets of chopsticks. But you could eat sushi. Um, if I were inclined to do so, I could eat sushi with them. I could eat sushi with know uh, baseball bat if i wanted to <laughs> you could <laughs> that's uh, what the yankees do most of the time yeah yeah and that's the other thing that that uh, we had in common which was pretty great is they're big yankees fans uh, especially because one of their top players ever is playing for the yankees even though he's yeah, injured now that makes sense there's a couple japanese guys in the league matt's got one too yep he's the other matsui yep there's a couple of them floating around new york yeah well that's cool i always like intermingling with other cultures planning a trip back to South America in the next few months myself, so I'll get to intermingle with uh, with another culture again, and maybe I'll get it right this time. <laughs> Perhaps. So anyway, let's jump into a tune. 
This is uh, this is actually a really smoking tune. This song is called "Out of Control" by a, a guitarist named Paul Androsa. I think we mentioned him a week or two ago. He's one of those sort of Hendrix disciples, Stevie, Stevie Ray Vaughan type player, you know, Strat guy. Plays that sort of Hendrixy vibe. He's a local guy. He's he's really brilliant. And despite the fact that John's brother Frank often plays on a lot of records that we did at this particular studio, Frank is not playing on it. But he did do the graphics for the CD. <laughs> but anyway, check it out. It's called it's called Out of Control. Chops. Guy can play. He can definitely uh, pick the Stratocaster. <laughs> he can pick that thing. So what are we drinking today anyway? We sort of forgot to talk about that. Oh. Yeah, it's a, it's a 2003 cab from the Liberty School. 
the Liberty School. Yeah, California. It looks like they're from Paso Robles, California. Yeah, it's pretty good. California. Yep, yep. A little bit tartar than I like, but uh, not a bad offering from California. Yeah, I had a decent Shiraz last night. We had a great dinner. Betsy and I went to uh, to dinner for her birthday. And I Where? Went, I went to one of my favorite restaurants on the entire planet. Howard Johnson's? And it just happens to be in Syracuse. It's not Howard Johnson's. <laughs> Denny's? <laughs> it's called, called Pastabilities. Oh, that's a cool name. Yeah, and, and they make their own fresh pasta and sauces. And it's the best way to have any kind of pasta dish when they make the pasta fresh. And the sauce that you get is prepared right before it's put on your plate. Unbelievable. Very good stuff. I used to go to the Georgetown, D.C. area to visit a friend of mine, and there was this really cool restaurant that only served spaghetti, right? Yeah. But their shtick was they had like 40 different kinds of sauces. Mm. So you would get, you know, fresh spaghetti made, and then you could try the different sauces, you know, and you'd put a little spaghetti in your plate and try a different sauce, and uh, it was really good. I don't remember what the name of it is. The last time I was there, it had closed, but... Really good. A restaurant that only serves spaghetti. <laughs> it's like, kind of like the soup Nazi. <laughs> no soup for you. That's right. No spaghetti for you. So anyway, let's jump right into this this little segment. And I kind of thought of this at work the other day. There's a guy who kind of hangs around the lunchroom when the TV's on, and he's just generally negative, and he, he spews a lot of crap. And uh, <laughs> kind of like He's an avid listener of this show, too. He is. He loves us. And uh, he wouldn't love us, actually. He wouldn't love me anyway because uh, he's a big Limbaugh fan. But he said something that I've been hearing for years. And as a guy who likes baseball and, as you mentioned in an email to me, you've been guilty of saying this in the, in the past yourself. But we were watching the World Cup because the World Cup is going on right now. And he said, God, this, this game just sucks. There's no action. No action. He's out of his mind. I'm chewing while I'm, I'm doing the show. It's probably a cardinal sin. <laughs> No action. I mean, I, as I said to you in that email, on its face, that statement is, first of all, simply untrue because all but two of the guys are always running. Right. Right. So, okay. Highly conditioned athletes because they're running constantly. Yeah. They don't stop running. Okay. So, fine. If by that he means scoring equals action, well, sure, it's one of the lower scoring kinds of team games that there is, right? I mean, you know, yeah, there that, can be there can hockey. be zero zero ties and things like that. Anytime there's a goaltender involved, there's generally low scores. But the game, and not that I actually even want to talk about the World Cup, because this isn't really about soccer or the World Cup. I described it to you uh, on the phone that day as soccer as a metaphor for U.S. culture. You kind of disagreed with my, my use of the word metaphor and kind of wanted to substitute American way of life or something like that. Yeah. But I, I'm, I'm comfortable with the word culture, you know, because, first of all, our country's all of, what, 230 years old, right? Yeah, people have been here, but I guess the... the the, American thing, that, the thing that we call the United States is is maybe about yeah 250 260 years old. Well, I'm going from date 1776. Let's just pick, yeah. you know, I I was using that date. Certainly there were we were kind of an established colony before that. But you know, that reminds me. I kind of want to start this off by talking about uh this brilliant essayist whose name I can't think of at the moment. <laughs> this helps me not one bit. <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll think of his name and go back there. But yeah, I mean, culturally we we don't have a lot of history, so we don't have a, a, what I think is a super rich culture. This essayist, whose name is escaping me at the moment, um, talks about the fact that in Eastern Europe, where he grew up, there are houses that people live in, which his families have been living in for 800 years and right. things like that, and that really just doesn't exist here. And mm -hmm. he did a brilliant sort of verbal essay on National Public Radio once, and... 
he talked about this very topic, at least that's the way I see it. He talked about American culture and how we're such a young country, we haven't had time to establish that kind of culture that a lot of European uh, you know, countries have. And he, he finished the essay by saying, well, in retrospect, I think America does have a lot of culture. The problem is it's all for sale on eBay. That was the last <laughs> sentence he said in the essay, and I thought it was kind of brilliant. Yeah, and, and I had a similar conversation with um, a colleague not too long ago describing my mother's hometown because she comes from uh, Bologna. Bologna? Yeah, Bologna in Italy. And this is a town, what's well, more like a city, that has uh, a lot of roots in the Roman Empire. I mean, we're talking about it has arches that were gates that were part of a wall that went around the entire city. Let me interrupt you for one second. That essayist's name is uh, Andre Cadrescu. I don't yes. know if you've ever heard of him, yes, but I've read his essays. Mm-hmm. I've, read, I've read a few of his books. He's brilliant. I absolutely love what he has to say on everything he chooses. He kind of does what we do. He writes about some kind of different things, and we do it in a show, but he mm-hmm. writes essays about it. But yeah, Andre Cadrescu, I think it's like C-O-D-R-E-S-C-U, Cadrescu, or it might begin with a K. He's yeah. from some Eastern European nation. What was Vaclav Havel's country? Um don't know. Okay. But uh, in any case, Bologna. Yeah. yeah so in, in my mom's home city, every building, every apartment, except for some of the, the newer ones, they are eight, nine, a thousand years old, eight, nine hundred, yeah. a thousand years old. Yeah, exactly. And uh, culture is, is very, very deep. Roots are very, very deep. And some people might look at that as slow moving, but I look at that as very rich, very rich. Oh, culture. it's definitely rich. And more to address the American culture, and we've certainly talked about this before, you were talking about how American culture is relaxed when it comes to formalities, let's say. But there are other areas where we're not relaxed at all. We're way too fast moving. You and I talk about slowing down and simplifying. And more people need to do that, you know, maybe have one car instead of two or at least six. (laughs) Or six, have cars that get good fuel economy and don't feel entitled to to drive them just because you can afford to. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Things like that. And and to address the the idea, not that, again, this is actually about soccer. I think this is more about culture. But as you pointed out in one of those emails to me, the more you learn about the game of soccer or baseball, uh, the deeper you get into it, you actually start to appreciate those slower moments for what they are when Mm -hmm. you learn about the tactics and the strategies. For me, things like I love hockey, I love soccer, or football, as they call it in the rest of the world. And for me, it's not even – well – it often is the goal that's pretty impressive, but sometimes it's the pass, the sh- the pass right. to the guy who scored the goal that's way more exciting than the goal itself. Because if somebody makes a brilliant pass and gets that great assist, sometimes it's j- all the guy who ends up with the ball has to do is kick it in, and it's really easy. Yeah. So for me, often it's a brilliant play. Playmakers, you know, are what's exciting about the game of soccer for me. Well, it's like the setup. I mean, it, you can see it as like a giant chess game that's nonstop. Where each person is placing themselves in a specific location, they're they're moving the ball around to to influence the location of the other players to get the guy open and then then make the shot. And as I've said in those emails, you know, I was guilty of this for a while. I was kind of bored with baseball, but then when you look at it, they're doing a lot of the same things. You know, they're they're getting the guy on base, they're doing sacrifices to move the guy over, and then they're looking at which batter should be placed. Maybe they should throw a pinch hitter up there based on the pitcher and his record against that batter, left-handed, right-handed, and it's constant strategy. And, and there are so many things you don't even see happening, like shifting the outfield, depending yes. on if the guy's a righty or a lefty, or even the pitch count. 
Yep. Or if you know what pitch is coming, a, a center fielder might actually try to read the signals from his catcher to see if it's going to be a fastball. Maybe Okay, so the guy's probably not going to pull it. So he might actually change his position in the outfield pitch by pitch. Yeah. And there's all of these subtleties to the game that it, it seems slow, but in fact there's a lot of stuff going on behind the scenes, if you will. And to me, I think it's a very exciting game. Yeah, you throw a guy up there who's known to be a phenomenal bunter that brings a third baseman off his base. You know, absolutely. And you're taking a guy, just by the guy at bat being who he is changes the def- the defense. So yeah. it's, it's a great thing. And you know, I'm going to be critical of the American culture right now, as I've said out loud. I mean, I think we need to slow the hell down. There's a lot of things I think that are wrong with American culture, and I think the fact that. Every country in the world loves soccer, and the U.S. finds soccer to be a little bit unpalatable. I think that makes a pretty uh, bold statement to me because my whole point of this was using soccer as a metaphor for culture. I think a lot of countries in the rest of the world get it right, and we don't, and they seem to love soccer, and we don't. I mean, certainly there are enclaves, and we do have a pro league again, but, but still, you know, for the most part, most Americans find soccer to be slow and boring. Yeah, and, and if you look at the games that are very popular in the United States, typically the top three, you know, baseball, football, meaning American football, right. and uh, basketball. Knut Rockney. <laughs> Win it for the Gippa. <clears throat> yeah, and, and where did all three of those games come from? Essentially, they originated in the United States. Maybe they yeah. were derivative of other games, but they, they originated in, in the U.S. And I think it's part of the American ego, the collective ego, that Americans feel that America is the best country on the planet. America is the most powerful <laughs> country on the planet when at all costs. And to find another country's sport popular is sort of going against the American way where it's we find our own way. We go off on our own. We invent our own thing and our thing is better. Well, a lot of the – I mean American culture, uh, we're almost like the Roman Empire now. You know, I, I see the Roman Empire as a – as a metaphor for American culture, too, because we're so obsessed with sports that tend to be a little violent. I mean, look at what's on Spike TV now. There's all of this ultimate fighter stuff, which is just really like bare knuckle brawling pretty much. Right. I mean, you get um, arrested for doing that outside of that. Yeah. Cage. If you're in a bar, you get arrested. And I mean, look what happened to the Roman Empire. You know, they died from lead poisoning. Right. <laughs> at least that's one of the theories. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I don't even know what I wanted to say next. I had an idea, but it just went away. Say something and maybe it'll come back. Yeah, well, and and then one of the things I did say in in our correspondence is there are some positive aspects to the American mindset in that you're always trying to find something new. It's the, you know, entrepreneurial spirit kind of thing, the striking out on your own. And you see a lot of that same kind of mentality in another culture which had very similar roots as the United States, and that's the Australian culture. Australia tends to be kind of like that as well. We were a penal colony for a major imperialist empire? Meaning we're an offshoot of the major imperialist empire. Oh, okay. And and in some ways we rebelled from that. We, you you know, said penal. We're essentially, we're essentially spoiled teenagers who rebelled from the, the parents of, of the British Empire. And we both, you know, sort of find... Uh, some comfort in that with each other. And I think that American culture and Australian culture can, can mesh pretty easily. Whereas American culture and British culture doesn't. Well, that's just because they're snobby and uptight. <laughs> that's right. That's what I'm getting at is that, you know, we, in some ways, um, socially we're, we're more compatible with someone like Australia, someone, something like Australia, uh, than we are with the, the country that we were derived from. 
Okay, I, I'll buy that. I tend to get along with all the Aussies I know, except that Martin guy. I don't know about him. <laughs> except but. for that Greg Norman guy. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's the clothes. <laughs> it's the trousers. <laughs> There's a reference. Do you get that one? Trousers. No, I'm not. I think not it was the trousers. The Ruddles. Oh, I never saw the Ruddles. Oh, you need to see the Ruddles. <laughs> That's a great film, you know. And despite the fact that I was digging deep to find the uh, the thought that was lost, I'm 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 groping, and yet I am not finding. So, <laughs> and it's a good thing you're on the other side of the table because that groping can get out of hand sometimes. I know, but I'm I know. Fun. And again, that'll get you arrested in a lot of cultures outside <laughs> of the ring. Yeah. So I I feel that that by and large the the American culture uh, can be crass um doesn't respect other cultures as it should i just arrogance is the word Ar- that comes yeah, to arrogance mind. oh and by the way you know i uh this guy that i reference a lot you know this guy from work because he's the big rush limbaugh right wing guy and he doesn't even know anything about it he just accepts everything limbaugh says as gospel mm-hmm. he gave to me the best example of why other countries hate us and our arrogance you know i mean we have people committing these acts of, of aggression against the U.S., and everybody in the U.S. thinks we're so innocent. And then guys like Bill Maher write books like Why They Hate Us, you know? Although he didn't give this example because I don't think Bill Maher was in the room. But the last game we played in the first round in our division in the World Cup was against Ghana, right? And mm-hmm. they beat us 2-1. to one. Not that this is about soccer. This is about culture. And he kept referring to Ghana as Guna. And he knows they're called Ghana. And he kept going, oh, geez, Guna's beating us. Guna this, Guna that. Is it any wonder why people hate us when we have these arrogant, arrogant jarheads talking like that? I mean, it's so disrespectful. They're not Guna. They're Ghana. Everybody right. in the world knows it. It's not a hard word to pronounce. It's G-H-A-N-A. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, it's not that hard to pronounce. And... It, Ah, it infuriates infuriates and infuriated me to no end. And he just thinks it's funny. He's just, ah, aren't I funny? Uh, no. <laughs> right. You don't amuse me at all. You disgust me. Yeah. It, and that's the other thing. I mean, that that pattern of speaking, you see that a lot where, where someone doesn't take the time to try to pronounce the name. They well, just, he was just doing it on purpose. Though. Right. I mean, yeah. there's that. There's That's that's just an awful, crass human being, an individual that's that's crass. But you see this very often in the United States where if they if they read an, an American or a non-American name or or a name that may be difficult to pronounce, instead of trying to find out what the pronunciation is, they'll settle on whatever they can come up with. And they'll refuse to deviate from that because they made up the pronunciation. Maybe in their head they're saying, well, I'm just going to say this because I'm not going to bother to learn what's the right way to do it. Like the wine we're drinking, Cabernet Sauvignon. Oh, it is a Sauvignon. (laughs) (laughs) That's actually said in humor, and we hope everyone uh, takes it in humor. But when somebody is digging at people who do that kind of thing with that. We're we're, kind of doing a twist on it. Yes. A little twist. See what I did there? I'm saying it the way they say it. But then I turned it around. You Brilliant. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, anyway, there you go. Soccer is a metaphor for culture. And I, I don't know. I think there's some actual valid parallels in there, you know? Yeah. Keep, anyway. keep your balls in the air. <laughs> it's so funny. You should say that because <laughs> one of uh, the people I talked to at work said that to me the other day. Anyway, let's go into another tune. And this one is the ass, the Asylum Street Spankers. And I saw them last weekend or two weekends ago now, I forget, at uh, the Earlville Opera House. And it was a really good show. So check them out. We'll, uh, we'll, of course, we'll link to them on our website. And this one is called High As You Can Be. Uh-huh. 
Yeah. Pretty wild. It's like 1929 in an old dusty whorehouse <laughs> listening to that song. If you're going to play blues, it should sound like that because I just feel like I need to bathe after listening to that song. It was just grungy and gritty and dirty and just like everything that blues is supposed to be, you know? Well, the last tune we played was kind of bluesy too, a little, little Hendrixy kind of a Strat yeah. vibe, you know? More Def- of a rock and roll based blues, but definitely like a, a 60s kind of blues. But you're, but this one was straight core, hardcore blues. Oh, no, it's totally <laughs> hardcore. Just acoustic double bass, slide resonator guitar, mm-hmm. harp, a simple drum part, great and vocals. some singing. Yeah, she was just laying it down like Billie Holiday or something. She's clearly, clearly influenced by Billie Holiday a great deal. So I went to see a movie at the MWA.org, and uh, it was a movie called Sophie Scholl, The Final Days. And I actually am not going to say too much about this film because this film needs to be experienced. I mean, I could talk about this film forever, but you really just need to experience this film. And it's probably going to bum you out. This film is about... (laughs) I I recommend this movie, but it's really going to make you want to go home and die. (laughs) It's going to make you want to cut your wrists and line a tub. With water up to your neck. No, not really. What this film is about is a group of kids, not not kids, they're college-aged kids in 1943 who were very, very much opposed to Hitler, his policies, and where Hitler was taking Germany. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody, of course, was convinced, you know, Hitler was going, we were going to win. It was this big denial thing, right? And the students just saw the truth. Look, the Allies are going to come and crush us. Why don't we just basically try to influence the country from within to to make this happen sooner. They really wanted Germany to fall, basically, mm-hmm. because they they saw that Hitler was evil. I'm not even sure they knew what was going on in the concentration camps, but they just saw that Hitler was a madman. So it was a bunch of college-aged people, and they formed a group called the White Rose, and this is not the first film that has been about this group. And uh, Sophie Scholl, I don't know that she was a leader or anything of the White Rose, I, actually, so I'm not quite sure why this film was called Sophie Scholl, The Final Days. It was uh, about her, her brother, and a few other people in the White Rose who were writing anti-Hitler leaflets. Hmm. Um, and they were they had been distributing, through, distributing them throughout the cities, various cities in Germany, at night, you know, putting them on street corners, hoping they wouldn't get caught. And what ended up happening was they wrote their sixth leaflet. And for some reason, they decided to start distributing them in universities, like while class was in session, but while class was literally in session, while the right. corridors were empty. And But it was still high treason to be doing this, to be speaking against Hitler. Penalty was, the, the potential penalty was death. So they ended up going to this local university. I don't remember what's in what city. And they were distributing the leaflets. And I don't know how historically accurate the the things around which they became caught were. But in the film, they uh, went up to the top floor and they were distributing, you know, stacks of them, you know, like a couple inch uh, thick stacks of these things. So like, you know, a couple hundred sheets or a hundred sheets of paper. And they went up to the third floor and Sophie Scholl uh, put them on the balcony and decided to go one step further. She pushed them off. So they were just falling into the atrium of the university. And it was at that point that they... Someone noticed these things falling, and they timed it so that class was getting out right when they were making their exit so that they could hopefully sort of intermingle with all the people and Ah. not get caught, except like a janitor or something in the building noticed that the only people coming from the third floor were them, and that's where the leaflets were raining from, right? 
So they ended up getting taken to the police station and they thought they had a good alibi cooked up. And two thirds of the film is basically uh, an interrogation. You know, you're you're kind of seeing it at, from the perspective of an interrogation. The local police lieutenant or the local police detective is interrogating Sophie Scholl, and basically, it's almost a, it's a, it's a classic Mickey Mouse interrogation. You know, lots mm-hmm. of yelling and screaming and shouting and a lot of intimidation to try to get her to admit it. And ultimately, her brother, I guess, ends up cracking first. Yeah, I mean, it's the it's the stereotypical interrogation too. You know, the lights shining in their faces right. and all that stuff. And ultimately, she ends up confessing and quite proudly, you know, talks about what she believes Germany should be doing. And it's, of course, quite the opposite of what Hitler is doing. And then it gets into the section where there's the sort of Mickey Mouse trial, right? Mm-hmm. They're up in, in, in front of the trial, and it's basically just this German judge shouting at them, you know? And what struck me about that scene was the similarity to actual historical footage I've seen of that assassination attempt against Hitler. I, Rommel was a part of it, and there was a bunch of people who were a part of that assassination attempt on Hitler where they put a bomb in a suitcase and they brought it to right, his, yeah. his lair, you know, his bunker. There was a Discovery Channel, I think, uh, or Special his, about History that. Channel, where they actually reenacted it. They, they recreated had, the table and yeah. all kind of, and the explosives, and I saw, I saw that. I yep. saw that. It was, it was brilliant. And ultimately what they discovered was that the table saved his life. Yep. And if they put that second explosive in there, he would have been dead. Mm-hmm. I, it, the sympathetic explosion would have caused the second piece to go off and he would have been dead. But there were a lot of people involved in that plot to kill Hitler, and I've seen some footage of the Mickey Mouse trials of some of the lower down people where the judge was just screaming at them and just like pointing fingers and going, you know, just it wasn't a trial at all. It was just a it was a joke. And this judge must the actor who played this judge must have seen those historical films because he basically nailed it. You know, he mm-hmm. was that guy that I saw in those films. And I'm sure the trial for Sophie Scholl and the other members of uh, White Rose went something like that. And ultimately, uh, you know, they were killed. But this film just kind of made me think of something um, Thomas Jefferson said. He said something like, there's nothing more dangerous than an indifferent electorate, right? Mm. Now, here's Sophie Scholl doing something to create strife from within and cause the downfall of Hitler from within her country. And it was the right thing to do because he was an evil madman, clearly. And I'm, I hate to go there again, but I'm just drawn to our country again and, and the indifferent electorate, you know? I mean, we, we have people who just trust what they're told, you know? They believe the crap that's coming from this administration. So I think there's a lesson to be learned here, you know? And an, and an electorate cannot be indifferent. They need to get involved. They need to go to the streets. They need to march. They need to print leaflets. They need to do podcasts. <laughs> they need to do all of those things. But anyway, you need to see this film. It's a it's a Mark Rothman film, uh, 2005 film, 117 minutes. It's not rated, but I believe this also was up in the best foreign language film uh, category in the Academy Awards, and it won many of the European awards. And it's just mm-hmm. a fantastic film. Sophie Scholl's played by Julia Jentsch, uh, J-E-N-T-S-C-H, and it's, it's really, really an amazing film. It, it's a bit of a downer. But it's a film that I think everybody should see. It's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, and I, it's it's funny how little bits of synchronicity are, are coming into play here. But I had a very similar conversation over dinner last night about how we, we have to be always aware of what's going on so that our rights and freedoms aren't taken away from us while we're sleeping, you know, quote-unquote sleeping. And, yeah, it's... Uh, 
pretty apropos. I think I'll, I'll uh, watch that film. And it's not even sleeping. I think a lot of people are fully awake and conscious. It's just that they believe the propaganda that they're told, you know? Well, yeah, they're not digging any deeper. Right, right. You know, it's, it's, you're comfortably numb. Well, there you go. There you go. And on a completely different note, I, I got this new mail order audio catalog in the mail, one of these mail order houses. I get all kinds of crap because I subscribe to a variety of actually good audio magazines like Mix Magazine and Electronic Musician. And I've never heard of this company before, but it's some new mail order house that popped up selling microphones and mixers and all that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And they have uh, two pages dedicated to podcasting. Wow. Two they, full. Two full pages of their catalog about podcasting. What they've done is they've created uh, a couple of uh, ready-to-roll turnkey podcast solutions. Three levels, the basic, the middle, and the the expert with a variety of microphones and mixers and things like that. So clearly uh, podcasting is sort of taking the world by storm when mail order houses are dedicating several pages of their of – their, and it's not like a 800-page catalog. This is like a 24-page catalog. So one-twelfth of the catalog is dedicated to podcasting. I think that says, I think that says something. Yeah, and, and I also think that I'm seeing some trends, kind of uh, some bad trends, uh, and they're inevitable. The, the large corporations are latching onto podcasting. Well, and, absolutely. And they're eating up a lot of the attention, the, the attention that, that people can, can pay to podcasting. It used to be where the grassroots guys who've got a podcast that maybe reached 50 or 100 people at a time, they could get their message out. Well, now if someone's only got an hour or two or three a week to listen to podcasts, you know, those, those big companies with the high production values are coming in and they're eating up that bandwidth. So this is my plea to... Keep listening to the independent podcast and get some information that's not "quote unquote" mainstream. Yeah, absolutely. But anyway, I think that's a show. What do you think? Oh, homework, homework assignment. I just yeah. got uh, Syriana on DVD, and uh, I think that Rich is going to be watching it this week. It's out on DVD, widespread release. So I if thought you can... Sexy Beast was homework. Uh, we were going to do that one, but I got this one instead, and, and I'd much rather do this one as homework. And you hear that? That's the CD, yeah, or the DVD. Well, we'll definitely check that out. I'll watch that. Sounds cool. But anyway, that means only one thing. Time to say bye-bye. <laughs> bye-bye. Anyway, this is Rich Wilgus. And John Tellerico. And you've been listening to Bloodthirsty Vegetarians. Episode 50. It is episode 50. The Wrath of Khan. <laughs> Technically 52. Check out our blog, www.bloodyveg.com. Send us interesting tidbits of goodness to feedback at bloodyveg.com. And check out the forum. Check out our, our photo gallery. We got all kinds of stuff on the website for your entertainment. We even got advertising. <laughs> we do, actually. <laughs> and that's actually fun to watch just to see what ads get thrown out there, you know? Yeah, Google AdWords is interesting. Anyway, yeah, check out all that stuff, and remember, you're listening to VIB. 